0: Support for WFIU News comes from The IU Alumni Association, now offering IU Proud, a member program designed for recent graduates and those facing economic hardship. More information at alumni.iu.edu. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.
1: Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. I'm hosting with Sarah Whitmire, the co-host and News Bureau Chief of WFIU-WPIU. We're talking with guests about the spread of COVID 19 vaccinations and mask mandates. And we hope to address some myths during the program today. With just over 77,000 fully vaccinated people, Monroe County is one of the safest places in Indiana. State Department of Health labeled the county as a yellow advisory level one step lower than all surrounding counties. You can follow us today uh, by sending us your questions to Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also send us questions using the email address news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you'll be talking with uh, Sarah and myself, but also Penny Cottle, who's the health administrator in the Monroe County Health Department. Dr. Tom Rismalas, Infectious Disease Specialist with Indiana IU Health. And in the second half of the program, we'll be joined by Dr. Aaron Carroll, Chief Health Officer for Indiana University. And Professor. he's also a professor of pediatrics with the IU School of Medicine. So thank you very much for being here. I know you've, uh, you've been with us before, um, Dr. Rismalis and and Penny. And we really appreciate uh, all the time that you've devoted to trying to answer questions about about what's going on and keep us updated on the situation with covid i want to start with uh, penny Cottle today and penny if you can sort of set the stage for where we are now i mean we're we're starting to get a lot more cases again Uh, and i know you know we do a story every day at wfiu about what the state numbers show and what the county numbers show and things aren't looking very good it seems to me could you uh, explain what's going on
2: Certainly. Thanks for having me. They, you know, I said the other day that I feel a little bit like deja vu that we've been here before. If people are following the, the case numbers and the, the data, they can see that, you know, we're, that our numbers are rising and we're back kind of where we were last winter, early spring. So we, we were seeing lots of improvement, but that has definitely went away. As you noted uh, in your introduction, um, in the state advisory, Monroe County is in yellow. We have been there now for uh, several weeks, but our numbers continue to go up. So our cases per 100,000 are at 141. And just to keep in mind that every time we talk about a case, we are talking about individuals who are sick, And those individuals, some may have mild disease, some will end up in the hospital, and some may die. And we want to reduce that possibility. We want to reduce as much infection as we can. And that is is our, our goal, is to improve this. If you look at that state map right now, Monroe County is still in yellow, but we are surrounded by a sea of orange and some red.
1: So to what do you attribute the fact that we're we're in yellow and that Monroe County, I say we're, but we've got counties, all those counties around us that are orange are counties that listen to WFIU as well. Um, why do you think that uh, Monroe has been able to stay in the yellow while the rest of the counties haven't been?
2: Yeah, well, that is a very good question. And I, I'm not sure that I have an exact answer to it. But I will say this, one of the reasons that Monroe County reinstituted the mask requirement for indoor public places was because we had that surge in, in cases and in people with infection, um, greater transmissibility. We know that we're seeing uh, the Delta variant, which is much easier to transmit uh, circulating. Uh, has been in Indiana nationally. It's accounting for uh, over 90% of all the cases. At last, I saw all of those things, and that you know means people. Our vaccination rates were were very good. We we were making good progress, and that started to slow. So the mask requirement was reinstated um, in early. Um, August, so that we could try to contain and get a handle on this um, spread and slow it down. Um, So hopefully that's part of the answer. Um, I think that in general, we have a population that does uh, try to follow uh, recommendations, whether they're in regulation form or not, and that does help.
1: So where are we now in Monroe County with uh, the percentage of people who are vaccinated.
2: I looked at that just before I came on and we just today hit 58% of our fu- of our eligible people who are fully vaccinated. So we wanted to be at that 60%, you know, early this summer. So while I'm happy that our vaccination rate continues to go up, um, I am concerned that it has waned and that we are seeing much slower uptake of vaccine. We've been doing outreach clinics and we often go ready and prepared and hoping to give, you know, 100 vaccines and we may only give two or three.
1: All right. Dr. Thomas Rismalus, uh, I want to ask you just in general about, uh, you know, what you're seeing on the ground from your perspective as well. And then we'll get into some specific questions.
3: Sure. I think we are seeing uh, pretty much what Penny just identified. We we have been seeing a, an increase in cases. The number of individuals hospitalized with COVID has gone up uh, a good uh, threefold or more. We're not as bad as we were back, let's say, in December and January. We're, our inpatient census at the in the South Central Region hospitals, Bloomington, Bedford, Paoli, um, Morgan, is probably half of what it was at that point, but significantly greater than it was back in early July. So we are seeing an increased number of cases. And some of those are uh, are fairly seriously ill, including ICU patients and ventilated patients.
1: Now, Dr. Aaron Carroll is going to be on with us in the second half of the program. And I believe that uh, uh, he he's quoted as saying that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated at this point. Would you agree with that? Um, What we're seeing locally, yes.
3: So if uh, we look at our numbers of inpatients in the South Central region, we're well over 90% are unvaccinated um, and only uh, probably between 5% and 7%, some low number are vaccinated individuals. If we look statewide at the IU health system, half of the un, half of the vaccinated people who are hospitalized have significant underlying medical illnesses that may have made the vaccine not very effective for them. So uh, to answer your question directly, yes, most of what we're seeing
1: is serious disease in unvaccinated individuals. So I wanna, I, through the program today, I'm gonna ask you a lot of questions that I think you've probably been asked before, probably even by me, um, about uh, some of the myths um, I'm calling the myths, but some of the reasons that people won't get vaccinated to try to get to the, the bottom of it and try to get to the science behind it. Like, uh, for instance, do breakthrough cases with people who are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 mean mean that the vaccine is ineffective, specifically with the Delta variant? I guess that's, that's just a general question. Yeah, I would, to, to address the myth question, I would say two things. First,
3: one is we see both myths about the disease itself, and then certainly myths about the vaccine to prevent it. Um, myths about the disease itself include things like that most young adults you know, are fine and don't have uh, significant illness. I mean, that's just not true. We see a lot of people, even though they may not be hospitalized, young adults who have protracted persistent symptoms that are quite bothersome to them. Myths about the vaccine um uh are many many to address your question about um uh, how effective the vaccines are, what has been of concern is their they they have been noticing some decreased effectiveness of the vaccines in preventing illness, still good protection against preventing severe illness, hospitalizations and so forth, but some perhaps decrease in effectiveness against asymptomatic or mild infection six to eight months after people have been vaccinated and to be proactive to prevent problems. That's why they're discussing uh, additional booster dosers. These vaccines are very good and uh, it's not expected that, um, you know, a, a vaccine like this would necessarily provide lifelong immunity.
4: I want to ask Penny about the, the county's mask mandate and just how that's being enforced, um, because it does seem kind of hit or miss. Certainly, it's not universal that people are wearing masks indoors, at least in, in my experience.
2: Yeah, that, and that's a good question. And the answer is we have dealt with this um, since the beginning when mask mandate first started and was even put in place by the governor. Um Any kind of regulation, whether it's a health regulation or um, police, you know, traffic regulations, not everybody is going to follow it. And there are processes for um, handling those things. What we always try to do is to educate and empower people to understand why the regulation is in place, what's required of them, and get voluntary compliance. So we are using the compliance officers again. Uh, they were helpful helpful to us last spring, and so we are using them again. We started, we wanted to make sure that businesses understood that the mandate went back into effect, what it meant. And so we've really been focusing on trying to educate, provide signs and information to businesses, and then deal with them can individually, right? So if we go into a business and they don't have signs, why don't you have signs? Do you realize that this mandate is in place? We can help you get the signs you need, those kinds of things. We have renewed our complaint line. And so people can file a complaint and then we will follow up on those. Um, So that's kind of the process really that Right. We're focused initially on education, making sure that people understand and we get calls every day. Does this apply to me or not? But it is indoors in public places. So if you are a public business, then people can walk into your business. Then, yes, it applies to you. Um, and and that's been the question. We've not put back a lot of the other Things that were in the previous orders. Uh, We would like to not have to do any of that. And so we're just asking people to follow the CDC's recommendations. That's what our mandate is built around, that because of potential for those cases with, for instance, breakthrough cases with Delta variant, that people are more contagious, Um, or as contagious, um, if they do have a breakthrough case, and we want to protect everybody. So the new recommendations for even fully vaccinated people were that anybody indoors in public places should be masking at this time. And so that's what the current health order is built around.
4: Gotta say here locally, I do feel sorry for people who, you know, um, servers and things who are having to turn people away since we don't have um, a uniform state mask mandate or anything. I think that's probably a really difficult job right now. (laughs) It
2: is. And, you know, when I try every chance I can to just say, you know, we all need to, everybody is stressed and uh, certainly would like this pandemic to be over, right? That it has taken a toll on everybody. And I think that we just all need to kind of take a a breath and remember to be kind. Um, somebody, you know, in that business, whether it's a greeter at a store or a server in a restaurant, they're doing their job and they're trying to do the best that they can. And that's really what we look for as well. When we go into these businesses and we follow up on complaints is how, you know, are they really trying, are they doing everything they can to comply and to get compliance? The, the compliance officers that we have sometimes assist them in modeling or teaching how you might be able to to approach someone which i think the easiest um initial thing is to say it looks like you forgot your mask or didn't realize we have a requirement locally um in the county but we have one for you and you know i hopefully people will accept that and uh, but this is uh, a community you know you've got choices and if you are in a business that requires them that you know, falls under this mandate, then uh, you either need to go and follow the, the law or I would say not go. The, there are some, ex, some exemptions and that can complicate kind of being able, able to observe compliance as well.
4: We got a question, Penny, about schools that are not enforcing the requirements. So what about those? I mean, I know we've done some reporting about Seven Oaks Classical Schools saying they were not going to require masks in, in there and they're in the county. Sure, so we, we have
2: a process for um, schools as well. The, the current order does say that they shall follow the um, CDC guidelines and the Indiana Department of Health guidelines. And so those guidelines are that schools should be, everybody, again, indoors in in schools should be masked at this time. And so that is the expectation with this order. Again, we take every possible um, avenue we can to get voluntary compliance. And if we don't reach that, then uh, we can issue fines um, or citations uh, there's a process for those to be appealed or paid or or dealt with and you know we never want to end up in court but sometimes that can happen
1: if you have questions today about uh, covid19 where we are where we are right now uh what the the regulations are as penny just talked about or who should get a booster any kind of questions just uh, send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org or you can follow us on Twitter and send us questions there at Noon Edition. Dr. Esmales, I have a couple of uh, specific questions I wanted to ask you. These are reasons why people have given for not getting the vaccine and I wanted to uh, have give you a chance to address it based on the data or the science. Um, do mRNA vaccines like Pfizer alter a human's genetic code or potentially lead to cancer? So the
3: answer to that is no. Um, Messenger RNA vaccines, the messenger um, that is in the vaccine goes into the, is absorbed into the cytoplasm of the cell. It does not go into the nucleus. It does not interact with the DNA. It does not alter the DNA and there
1: is no, uh, genetic alteration or risk of cancer. All right, I've uh, heard some questions asked about whether the um, the vaccine could um, harm the fertility of young people who might take it. Sure, they've
3: they've looked uh, firstly at um, issues in women who may be desiring to be pregnant or women who are pregnant. And they've uh, obviously looked at many women who have been vaccinated and have not identified any issues uh, that would impair fertility, that would complicate pregnancy. And in fact, the major health organizations such as American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and so forth now recommend that women get vaccinated and even that pregnant women especially get vaccinated because they are at increased risk for serious complications of viral infections, including COVID. So it's important to protect them. And the vaccines uh, have been found to be safe in that population. They have been continuing to look at all kinds of issues regarding uh, fertility and sperm counts in men and so forth. And uh, as of present, no, there do not appear to be any uh, significant complications or problems in that setting.
1: This is one that's a little bit about about history and, and perspective. A lot of people just say, you know what, I don't want the government telling me what to do. Um, it's my body. If I don't want to get a vaccine, vaccination, I don't have to. Aren't there, I guess I'm asking this way, aren't there certain um, vaccinations that that people are required to get for going to school or for certain reasons, or am I wrong about that? No, that's,
3: uh, there are, and there have been, for you know many 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 years, um, th- that's always a difficult issue to address because certainly people have you know the rights to make decisions about themselves and so forth. I would just um, emphasize to those individuals that it's not all about you as an individual. It's about your actions helping to protect those around you who may not be as fortunate as you are that may not be as healthy as you are that may not be able to defend themselves and they need the help of all of us uh, and the consideration of all of us uh, in terms of a public health effort so my response
1: is it's just not all about you okay one last uh question along the these these kinds of questions um can you take the, uh, the vaccine if you have an egg allergy? Yes. So
3: when the vaccines were, the messenger RNA vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines were initially uh, rolled out, there were some allergic reactions. And of course, that has been looked at very carefully. And individuals who have egg allergies, penicillin al- allergies, medicine allergies, bee sting allergies are not at any increased risk for allergic reactions to these vaccines. It appears that the rare allergy to the vaccine is related to a chemical in its manufacture um, that is not present in uh, a lot of these other products that we're talking. It's it's a polyethylene glycol, uh, which is actually a very common chemical. It's in uh, cosmetics and it's in laxatives and it's in things of that sort. And allergy to that is actually very rare. But no, if you're allergic to other things, it's okay to get this vaccine.
1: Okay, one last one. Uh, I said that was going to be the last one for now, but one last one because we just got one sent to me by our producer uh, that says, you know, my immune system will fight the virus off. Vaccines weaken your ability to naturally fight off sickness. Is that correct?
3: No, absolutely untrue.
1: Um,
3: Firstly, uh, in many individuals who have relatively mild infection with this COVID uh, uh, virus do not generate a very strong immune response. And we indeed have seen individuals with COVID more than once. Um, you know, their first infection last spring and now another infection again this year or, or back in December or so. And so uh, the natural immunity against this virus may not always be as good as we hope. The vaccine boosts your immunity. And in fact, individuals who have had COVID who then get the vaccine afterwards have the best immunity of anybody. So it enhances, it augments, it improves the immunity in everybody, including the people who have had COVID.
4: I have one quick follow-up to one of Bob's MythBuster questions. Uh, But another question I know we got was about antibiotics. If you're allergic to a lot of antibiotics, will that, will you have, yeah.
3: That does not appear to be a risk either. So medication allergies do not uh, cross-react with these vaccines. So uh, no. So if you're allergic to penicillin or or something of that sort, it's a-okay to get the vaccine.
4: Okay. And another question, Dr. Ismala, is uh, can you talk a little bit about kids in schools right now and um, being unvaccinated? Do you have any sense of where we are in terms of getting a vaccine and why the vaccine we have now isn't suitable for
3: children? Well, it's not that it's not suitable. It's just that the FDA would, will not give emergency use approval or approval for those vaccines until they have the data in that age group. And so the data that's been submitted to the age group has been for 12 and above for Pfizer and 18 and above for Moderna uh, and Johnson & Johnson. Uh, the data for younger kids under age 12 has been submitted to the FDA, and everyone is anticipating that the FDA will give approval for the vaccine for younger children sometime, hopefully early this fall.
1: All right. We are uh, about halfway through the program now, and I want to give you our numbers again. You can you can find us or you can send us your questions to news at org. And you can also follow us on Twitter, at Noon Edition. We have Penny Caudill from the the Health Administrator for the Monroe County Health Department with us. That was Dr. Tom Rasmales, Infectious Disease Specialist with IU Health. And we are also being joined now by Dr. Aaron Carroll, Chief Health Officer at Indiana University, also a Professor of Pediatrics. And this is a really good time to ask you, Dr. Carroll, about uh, children you recently Published, uh, you had a, an article published in the Atlantic that made a case for vaccinating children under 12 years old as soon as possible, and I wanted wanted you to um,
5: to talk about that. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I think that article was was you know a preemptive measure because, of course, vaccines have not yet been approved for kids at that age group, but to to try to at least get out in front of the many questions and concerns of. Parents who might be questioning whether they should vaccinate their kids. So, you know, of course, when we shut down schools about a year ago or even more than a year ago last spring, you know, the concern was not so much that, you know, kids were at major risk, but the kids could actually be a vector uh, of transmission to parents or certainly grandparents who were at major risk. Um, Of course, now that we vaccinated most grandparents and vaccinated a lot of parents, uh, the, the question now turns to well, what is the risk to actual kids? and a lot of people will minimize that and say it's not that great it's not that big a deal but the risk is still there uh you know three at least 350 kids have died of covid in the last year probably more um uh, many 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 thousands have been hospitalized um, thousands have had uh misc multi inflammatory uh, syndrome covid which we really don't understand that well um but appears to exist uh and that's real those are those are numbers that are worse than almost any flu season that we've had, and that shouldn't be minimized. And we would absolutely advocate to immunize kids against flu. But of course, you know, kids are part of our community. And in addition to the danger that they pose, to, or the danger that's posed to themselves, there's, there's danger to everyone else. And the more people that are unvaccinated in a community, the more people that get COVID, the more chance there is for variants to rise and spread, and the more danger that everyone else is still in. The areas where kids are in hospitals and in ICUs are in significantly increased numbers are mostly in areas and states where many people are unvaccinated, which is, of course, a reason to get more adults vaccinated. But those numbers are increasing because Delta is more contagious and kids can absolutely get Delta. Uh, And the only way that we can truly start to, to prevent the spread is to get as many people as possible vaccinated. That includes kids. The, the risks from vaccines are incredibly small. The risks from COVID are real and much, much larger, even for children. Um, the risks from the COVID vaccines are, you know, incredibly small. But, and the risks, while they can be smaller for children are still real for COVID. And they're still real in the sense that they can spread uh, out even further. People can get uh, breakthrough cases. And certainly we're seeing cases amongst the unvaccinated. So, you know, this is at the moment, a theoretical discussion, but hopefully in the next few months, it'll become a much more real one. And and I think we absolutely uh, can make an easy argument that the kids should be vaccinated as soon as we can.
4: I'd, I'd love to get your opinion just on what parents can do to protect their kids anymore, who are going to school in person where they're indoors all day and and Is there anything they can do when they are
5: all unvaccinated? Well, the same things I would argue that we need to do for, you know, all the time to prevent the spread of infectious diseases. The first and best thing we can do is get everybody around them vaccinated. If teachers and staff would get vaccinated, if all parents would get vaccinated, if everyone around kids would get vaccinated, um, they would be much more protected than they are right now. So. We don't have enough people in Indiana vaccinated. So that would be the first thing we can do. But after that, it's the measures that keep kids safe. It's, uh, you know, masking as much as possible still works. Um, Distancing as much as we can, more outside time than inside time. Uh, You know, make sure we properly hand wash, try not to eat in large groups. All of those things will help. Those things are harder at school, but most cases of COVID are not transmitted in schools. No, we, we can argue about, Uh, The fact that cases pop up, but most cases of COVID still come in social situations. Birthday parties, sleepovers, get togethers, you know, riding in cars and going places. Those are the real danger points. Those were the real danger points all of last year. Uh, We didn't have a ton of classroom transmission of COVID last year. And of course, we had much less vaccination last year. I think schools, if they do a good job, are going to be pretty safe. The danger is everything that, that really happens outside of that. Um, and, you know, it's the same kind of argument we make at an IU level. Like we can, you know, the classrooms will probably be very safe. The danger points are bars, they restaurants, they're parties. Um, those were the danger points last year. Those will be the danger points this year. And so we need to do everything we can to be safe outside of those situations just as we are inside. Um, you know, getting our soapbox for a second, we've never been good in America at protecting those who are, you know, at most need of protection. Um, during flu season, every year I write columns begging people to go get vaccinated. Not enough did. Beg people to stay home from work when they're sick, but we don't have good sick leave policies. Uh, I beg people, you know, to do a better job of hand washing and, you know, staying away from others when they're ill or potentially symptomatic and, you know, not exposing others. We We don't do a good job of that in general. Last year we did because of covid and hopefully we learn something and we just need to continue that kind of behavior as we move forward
4: so just a quick follow-up you mentioned vehicles and transportation is it safe for kids to be riding school buses
5: well i would you know i think you know tsa and i think it is ironically enough it's tsa guidelines i believe but but there are guidelines that all sort of public uh transportation should require masking which definitely would help um and for what i'm talking about car rides those kids aren't being, you know, when when we, when we, I've seen it, when, you know, we put a bunch of kids in the minivan, they're not wearing masks. That's, that's where the real danger occurs. Masking will help. Certainly the better ventilation we can. um, Hopefully they're on the bus, not that long. So it's, is the danger, is the risk greater than zero? Sure. Is it huge? Probably not. Um, You know, we, we usually see, I think, more transmission when people are unmasked and, and all together for significant periods of time. And hopefully on the, the bus rides up and back to school, they're not as long. We can keep them well ventilated and, and hopefully we'll mask them up and that'll protect things much much more than they otherwise would. Some of what Dr. Carroll just said um,
1: prompted a question from me. I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Rismalis to talk about it first, but both of you can, all three of you can Um and that is, do we have an opening here to um, try to get more people vaccinated by saying, you know what, you got some holidays coming up. I mean last year at this time, or not not this time, a little bit later, we talked about the fears about Thanksgiving, the fears about Christmas, where people are going to be coming together, they were unvaccinated, they could be super spreader events. I mean, can we is this a an entree into trying to persuade people to become vaccinated? Just it, maybe it's not too early to, to start thinking about these holidays that are going to be coming up. Dr. Osmanos? Well, I think certainly so. I mean, I think um, we know
3: that transmission occurs in those type of uh, close group settings. And uh, we know that uh, if individuals are vaccinated, they have a decreased risk of acquiring infection, let alone serious infection. So, you know, I think there is a big... Uh, desire among the among everybody to get our lives back to normal and gee you know how many people do you talk to and say, who say gee I'm tired of wearing masks I'm tired of worrying about this well we do have a solution if we could get large percentage of the population vaccinated and maintain good immunity we would get past this a whole lot faster so yes for sure all right Dr. Carroll do you
1: want to address that as well
5: I mean, I I, I want to say I hope so, but I think science communication and changing people's minds is incredibly hard. And it is detailed, like individual level work. We'd like to, to all we all want to believe there's a tweet or a simple like, you know, soundbite or a TikTok that'll suddenly convince everyone who's not vaccinated to go get vaccinated. Um, the people who can be convinced easily have been convinced. Uh, The rest are going to require more effort and resources and local, you know, input. Uh, Sometimes it has to come from trusted voices within a community. And finding the right voice in the community can be difficult, especially for people outside the community. I also think that, you know, finding out what exactly... The reason people are resistant to vaccination is it's super important. It could be misinformation or disinformation. It could be mistrust of the healthcare system. It could be, uh, you know, the fact that no one's, everyone's peers are not vaccinated. It could be fear. It could be financial. Lots of people believe that these vaccines are expensive and they can't afford them. It could be logistical. They just can't get time off. I mean, whatever it is, figuring out what it is and then trying to work to overcome that barrier requires resources and effort and time and a lot of individual level commitment that um, we don't really often have enough of. Uh, and so I, I, I hope that, you know, appealing to people's sense of the holidays are coming up will work. I hope that people seeing more and more cases and then hospitals are filling up will work. I hope that, you know, positive the messaging we keep putting out will work. But I, I, I think it, it's going to take still a lot of work
1: and a lot of effort to, to get this job done just to make sure that everybody understands the vaccines are free to anybody,
5: correct? Free, yeah, absolutely. Okay,
1: Sarah?
4: Uh, this is a question we got in for Dr. Mollis, and it, it sort of follows along with what we were talking about earlier, but this is from Larry, and he says, several people I know with auto de- autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis are wondering if we developed an effective immune response to the vaccine. Is there anything we should be doing differently? And also does having an autoimmune disease make you by definition immune compromised and eligible for a booster shot?
3: So several parts to that question. Um, uh, individuals with autoimmune diseases per se are not necessarily more susceptible to this infection, but it, individuals who are on immunosuppressive therapy certainly are. And uh, Those individuals, particularly who are on, for example, steroid therapy or who are on tumor necrosis factor inhibitors, who have rheumatoid arthritis, who are being treated, uh, cancer patients, HIV patients, organ transplant patients, all those individuals are at increased risk. Um, We don't have great routine testing that can tell us whether or not they've responded well to the vaccine before. Most of the antibody testing that's available is qualitative Positive, negative, and we and although there are some tests that are being developed that could tell us better whether someone might be protected or not. Those are not the routine ones that you might go get uh, available. Anyway, so the FDA did approve booster vaccines for those individuals who meet certain uh, criteria of uh, immune suppressive diseases or uh, therapies and those can be obtained now. Um, if you fall into one of those categories, uh, those booster doses can be given, and, in, and even individuals who did not respond to the first two doses, a good percentage of them may well respond to a third dose, and so that's certainly worth doing.
1: I wanted to follow up on that, and maybe, Penny, you, Penny, you sent out a press release yesterday that was about the, the booster shots, and, um, you know, I've been reading a lot about it because I've Feel like I fall into one of the categories that might be able to to use a booster, and a lot of a lot of places I've read have said things like eight months after your second dose you should get it. I think what your press release said yesterday from the CDC was twenty eight days after your second dose would be fine to go get a booster. Can you talk about what the what the regulations are now?
2: Yeah. So the and just I guess to clarify because I think so many times. People get confused. There's lots of conversations going on right now about this third dose for people who are immunocompromised. And there's a kind of a short list, if you will, of those individuals who this third shot is being uh, recommended for. And then there's talk about, right, the general populate, more of the general population and a booster dose, which may come um, this fall. Right, so the the that third dose that Dr. Smolys was talking about, um, if you fall into one of those categories, you can get it now. Uh, there wasn't a specific; it was just that it should come at least another month after that second dose that you originally got. So yes, when we talk about those boosters that may come and may get approved later. Uh, in the coming weeks or or months, um, that's where they're really talking about after that eight months. Did that answer yeah, your question? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay. Absolutely. That clarifies it. I appreciate it very much. Uh, Dr. Carroll, we've got, uh, you know, students are, are coming back in great big groups this weekend and, and they've been coming in all week. Um, we've heard, I think I've heard the term 90% uh, are vaccinated of IU faculty and staff and
5: students. Is that correct? So, um, we'll actually be, I believe, updating our dashboards with public information. Um, it's going to, I mean, it will be differentiated by, by campus a bit. I think the numbers we've released so far broadly are for all of our campuses you know, approaching 85% in and at this point, it might even be at 85% or more Um, and it'll be different on each campus. But I, I, until those numbers, I think get posted later today. I think that's what I can say.
1: All right. So compared to last year at this time, when students were coming back, um, you know, how do you feel about the, about our ability to, to make sure that we don't get into some sort of a serious spread and that, students, faculty, and staff can stay well?
5: Well, I mean, you know, the first the first and best thing we can do is get as many people vaccinated as possible, which is why we uh, enacted a vaccine mandate back in May, because we just knew that, uh, you know, high levels of vaccination were going to be more protective than almost all the other measures that we can do combined. That said, uh, we're still clearly masking up indoors at the moment. We will still be Doing asymptomatic testing on those who are unvaccinated once a week. We're still offering significant amounts of, you know, symptomatic testing for everyone that needs it through our labs and our campuses, as well as voluntary testing for anyone who wants to get tested, vaccinated or unvaccinated at any time. Um, we have robust contact tracing, quarantine and isolation for those that need it. We're, we're set up with everything we had, you know, last semester and more. You know, if you'd asked me a year ago at this exact moment, I was panicking. I think I was felt like I was having all-day panic attacks every day because we had no idea how this was going to go. COVID was somewhat new. Uh, we were bringing people back together. We didn't have a lot of what I just described. We did not have our own testing facilities. We could not test at the numbers we would like. Um, we were you know, sort of flying blind and hoping everything was going to go okay. And even though we had built up symptomatic testing, the beginning of our asymptomatic testing, contact tracing, isolation, it was all new. Uh, This year, we're entering with all of that and significant levels of vaccination. You know, across all of our campuses, 85%. You know, some campuses, higher. Uh, And that will provide much more protection. I wouldn't say that we're, you know, Overconfident, or you know, even that you know we're just not careful. Like we're still, as I said before, doing significant levels of asymptomatic testing of people who are not yet vaccinated. We'll still be doing, you know, real contact tracing and isolation. We'll still be following CDC guidelines of uh, testing people who are close contacts um, at three to five days, just to make sure that you know we're not seeing too much spread even into the vaccinated population. And we'll and we'll mask up and be careful. But I I believe that that vaccination works, and I believe that. Because of it, you know those at IU will be safer that, than than those who are not at IU uh, in the sense that the time we spend amongst each other at IU is amongst an incredibly vaccinated population. I wish Indiana was at 85 or ninety percent. I really do um I, I that is not the truth. Um, most of the serious outcomes that we're still seeing in terms of hospitalizations or worse ICU and you know God forbid death are are, are so 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 much skewed to unvaccinated people and we're going to do our best to get the last few people at IU vaccinated if we can Uh, but we really do believe that the time people will spend at IU at work and at school will be amongst the safest time they will because because there is such a high level of vaccination but of course we'll be watching all the data we'll be super careful and we'll be monitoring and if we need to make further adjustments we will but I I definitely feel better going into this semester than I did last or or last fall.
1: So just just to clarify, uh, will there be a, a vaccination clinic that is open to students and also Penny in Monroe County? Can people walk in anywhere or somewhere and just get a vaccination on demand?
5: Well, I mean, we we still I believe vaccinate in our student health clinic, and we're doing so. But but I mean, we should be clear. I think you know one of the reasons that. Uh, we stood up a site on IU's campus last year was one to help serve the community because there there just wasn't enough vaccine um, as well as of course to serve IU's constituents you know and and the broader community in bloomington. but at this point, vaccination is widely available. The problem is not, Demand the problem, or the supply. The problem is demand has gone down. Uh, People can get vaccinated same day, walk in in most drugstores, in most you know lots of supermarket chains. um, Not to mention many, many, many other sites. Uh, And so, while we did you know offer vaccination for everybody checking in, for instance uh, to IU's dorms, there was not a huge amount of uptake other than what we had pre-scheduled because you know people were coming from international. Uh, At this point, again, the problem is not supply it's that we just need to convince people to go get vaccinated who are still unvaccinated and so uh, we certainly would stand up infrastructure if it was needed because of all of a sudden a massively increased demand Uh, but but we're just unfortunately in indiana not seeing that demand
1: penny anything to add
2: certainly and thanks dr carroll because that ditto to, to everything that he said and you know that that site over time like other sites saw less and less demand. We continue to do vaccination clinics. Uh, we have what we refer to as Moderna Mondays on Miller Drive. And if you can make an appointment, you can still use ourshot.in.gov to do that. Um, but we, I, I talked about it at the beginning of the show, we do have outreaches planned. Our big outreach really starts in September with schools. So, we usually do flu vaccines in our public schools and, our, and some of our private or charter schools. And we are doing that again this fall and we'll have COVID vaccine available for students who are 12 and over. So parents can you know, provide consent and they can take care of that flu vaccine and the COVID vaccine if they have not already done that. So that will be taking up a lot of our time this fall. And then we'll be looking at how we might be able to enhance other, provide additional time. But as Dr. Carroll said, providers offices now have vaccine um, in many of those. Um, So it it is much easier to get than it was when we started this process in December,
4: January, February. For Dr. Carroll that we actually got a, couple weeks ago when the mask policy was reinstated was just why was the mask policy reinstated since the vaccination rate is so high and was IU compensated in any way to participate in a study about masking and is that why they did it
5: no well I first of all I I, first of all I I have no idea if there is a study going on of masking and then whether or not some part of IU might've participated in it, but I can tell you, I'm not aware of it. And that was not the reason um, that we did. I I do think it's a reasonable question to ask. And it's, it's certainly one that we discussed Because as I've said quite publicly in webinars and everywhere else, you know, the CDC makes those recommendations and, you know, in, in the sense that, like, they're trying to identify areas of substantial or high risk of transmission and then recommend that people mask up in those areas. And the only way that they have to define that is crude. It's cases per county. That's what's available to the CDC. They're not looking at vaccination rates, or is this building safer than that building, or is this campus safer? They're just saying cases per county. And and to their credit, you know, Monroe County is, is following CDC guidelines and saying we're substantial or high, and we're doing what the CDC says. Um now we could we could make an argument, and I think it would not be totally incorrect that perhaps the risk of transmission in IU's buildings would be low uh, because we're so vaccinated. But we don't know, and we don't know yet, um, and maybe we'll have more information on that in a few weeks as everybody comes back to campus, uh, but given, you know, the fact that this is a CDC recommendation, it's a Monroe County, um, you know, Passes rules. We're 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 good citizens, and we're following along with what's going on. And as other campuses, including those other campuses that have required vaccination, have also decided to open with masking in order to be extra safe, I think that we're gonna you know try to be safe and follow forward. It was not about receiving compensation for doing a study. It's about trying to be safe as we re-enter uh, the school year. We're. You know, certainly going to keep an eye on things and on many of our campuses, if things look incredibly safe as we move forward and it turns out we're just not seeing spread or anything else, you know, we may re- revisit that decision and we may do it campus by campus based upon what we're seeing. But, uh, you know, certainly given that the, the last year, the real surge that we saw was right at the beginning of the semester, it's probably best to enter the semester with a little bit of extra safety and then back off then to, to not have that safety and then have to play catch up.
4: Yeah. And Penny, at the beginning of the program, you mentioned something about, you know, we have the masks in place now. And if we have to, you know, we can look at other restrictions. Is that something that the county is actively talking about now? Or are you just in wait and see?
2: I certainly did not mean to imply that we are, you know, awaiting further restrictions. Oh, no, no. And I'm
4: sorry. (laughs) I don't think you did. But yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't want to have to put any further restrictions. I think the the answer is that, you know, we, we are in a different place than we were this time last year, certainly. And with vaccines, things are better in that respect. Um, we want to watch and just take those steps that are reasonable and needed and nothing more restrictive than what we really need to do. So... We, the Board of Health and the, the health officer and our community partners, IU, um, IU Health, got a, a whole host of people that we communicate with regularly to make sure that we've got information sharing and and be able to look at what's going on and make decisions for the community uh, as we need to. But I will go back and say, and I think everybody has said it so far, we have the tools to get over this and get over this hump and not need a lot of regulations, but we have to use the tools that we have. And that vaccination, masking, our hand hygiene, staying home when you're sick, you know, it is still isolation and quarantine protocols are still needed. Uh, all of those things are still things that we need to practice and do. Um, but we have the tools. We just have to use them.
1: All right. We have less than a minute to go. Dr. Rasmales, I wanted to give you the last word. Uh, Penny pretty much summed it up, but I was going to ask you also, you know, what do we need to do now to, to get back to closer to being normal? Um, certainly,
3: I guess I would emphasize that we know a whole lot more than we did last year. We're better prepared than we were last year. But we're still learning. And there are a lot of questions out there. Um how long does immunity from the vaccines last? What about breakthrough cases? How transmissible are people? So we want to be cautious. We want to be ahead of the curve. We want to be preemptive. And uh, that's the way we can get back to a more normal
1: uh, life. All right. Thank you very much. We've had three great guests today, and I think we provide a lot of information. Penny Caudill, Health Administrator for Monroe County Health Department, Dr. Tom Rasmallis, infectious disease specialist with iu health and dr aaron carroll chief health officer for indiana university for my co-host sarah whitmeyer for producers holden abshear and Dental boutier and for engineers john bailey and mark chilla i'm bob zaltzberg
0: thanks for listening to
1: noon edition
0: Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or com.